0: Welcome to the Aadna Law Podcast. This is the second part of our discussion on international law and how it addresses the impact of conflict on cultural property. In part one of this podcast, Aadna Law Managing Partner Kamala Naganand laid out a comprehensive history of this issue, as well as some more recent examples of the impact of conflict on cultural property. In part two, she discusses the various treaties that have come into play over the years which look at cultural property. And she then also discusses implementation and enforcement of these international obligations and the various steps for dispute resolution that these treaties lay out. Stay tuned for extracts from her talk at the OP Jindal Global Law University. Ahead.
1: I would now like to take you through the various treaties that have come into uh, play over the years, which are looking at cultural property specifically, right? The first of them is the Rorik Pact. Now, you must have all heard of the famous artist Nicholas Rorik, right? He was an ardent patron of the arts culture, and he moved between New York, India, Russia, and Europe. And he was a prolific artist, but one of his passion projects was the Treaty on the Protection of Artistic and Scientific Institutions and Historic Monuments or the Rorick Pact of 1935, right? So what the pact really looked at was this is an inter-American treaty. And the most important idea of the pact was to give legal recognition that the defense of cultural objects is more important than the use or destruction of that culture for military purposes, and the protection of culture always precedes over any military necessity. So this was a pact where they had three seg- three significant sessions, and at the end of it in Washington DC on twenty sixth of August nineteen thirty five, right? This was this was a treaty signed uh, that was signed. It has 21 signatories and 10 parties, right? And two ratifying states. And although India approved the treaty in 1948, no formal action was taken to ratify the convention before parliament. But what's important to see is that the First World War, right? And the Russian Revolution really, really spurred Rorik's realization that cultural heritage of every nation is a world treasure. And that cultural heritage includes more than just physical remains of earlier cultures, right? the buildings and the art, creative activities, universities, libraries, hospitals, concert halls, theaters, right? It is much more than that. It is a way of life. It is how people live. It is um, intangible traditions which are lost in armed conflict, right? So this was a symbol that they created, right? The three circles in a red, And it was supposed to be put on cultural heritage sites, which would be marked with this symbol. And so the minute you see this, you knew that this was something that was to be protected, right? The Rorik Pact also prescribed a method where all sites of cultural value would be declared neutral and protected, just like how Red Cross hospitals were, right? And it came to be known as the Red Cross of culture. This really, really was the seminal treaty that came together. And it was really something that UNESCO then built upon with the Geneva Convention, which we're going to talk about next, and the Hague Convention. Right. So this happened in 1935, right? The Rorick Pact. The next we're going to look at is the Geneva Convention, which was in 1949, just after World War II, where again, after so much of destruction and Nazi Um, you know, terrorism, really, the Geneva Convention and their protocols, created this international treaty that contained the most important rules, limiting the barbarity of war, right. And they protected people who do do not take part in fighting, you know, that is civilians, uh, uh, medical doctors, and prohibited, right, any hostility on places of worship, on historical monuments, on works of art, right? Things that constitute the people's cultural and spiritual heritage. This was of course, under the aegis of the United Nations. And what was interesting is that it was really, really something that was ratified by a large number of countries. And it was then immediately put into practice. India is a signatory to the convention of 1949, but has not ratified the additional two protocols, one and two. Now, the third, right, important thing that we need to look at or important treaty that we need to look at is the 1954 Hague Convention and its additional protocols. Now, this, again, has been one of the most important in defining what cultural property is in Article 1A, where it says movable or removable property of great importance to the cultural heritage of every people, such as monuments of architecture, art or history, whether religious or secular, archaeological sites, Groups of buildings, which as a whole are of historical or artistic interest, works of art, manuscripts, books, and other objects of artistic, historical and archaeological interest, as well as scientific collections and important collections of books and archives, or of reproductions of the property defined above. Now, it's very important to see that they've said books here, because I'm not sure if any of you know about what happened in Nalanda, right? So in Nalanda, there was one of the most prolific libraries that ever existed in India. And during the time of one of the dynasties, the whole thing was burnt and this was in India. And so huge amounts of uh, historical writings on papyrus leaves that we had uh, as a nation, we lost. And scholars from China and from Tibet had come and actually translated those writings and taken back. And so what's interesting to note is within our culture, a lot of it now is in Tibet. So a lot of our Indian culture is available in Tibet, in Tibetan language, in Tibetan scrolls for us to access. And that is the importance of cultural heritage, because once lost, it will never come back. And so India now is a signatory to the Hague Convention and protocol of 1954. What is interesting to note is that the Hague Convention talks about damage to cultural property belonging to any people whatsoever means the damage to the cultural heritage of all mankind. Since each person makes its contribution to the culture of the world, and should therefore receive international protection. So this is one of the first times there is this concept of eloka sukino right? That, or vasudaiva or kutumbakam, where all of us are one ultimately, right? Whichever part of the world we are in, but what's important is for us to respect and identify what cultural property means. And all of us do our bit to protect it, especially in the case of military or armed conflict. Right. The next convention is primarily a European-based convention that I'm going to discuss. Right, It's called the uh, Convention of the Council of Europe for the Protection of Architectural Heritage of Europe, 1985. It's primarily to do with protection of European culture. It was promulgated in Granada in 1985. And for the first time, an international treaty, including the principles right, of uh, integrated conservation, were brought in. And the main purpose of the convention was to reinforce and promote policies for the conservation and enhancement of Europe's heritage. So what is interesting to note is that the recommendations of this were that, you know, conservation of architectural heritage as a component of town planning be included. Adaptive reuse of buildings be looked at. Right. training in traditional crafts to aid conservation and restoration take place, because what's happening is a lot of the traditional crafts right, have all been handwork and a lot of people have moved from handwork. And so even if they would like to conserve, they don't have enough people to do it. There's also a limited public access as a conservation measure, because they saw that a lot of tourists were coming into a lot of the really, really big, you know, architectural uh, heritage sites, and so they wanted to create public awareness and education programs around this. And finally, technical assistance, training, and exchange of information on how conservation can take place. Finally, we look at the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court, right? So this was the seminal Treaty which put into place the war crimes, uh, the International Criminal Court, right? To try war crimes in 1998 the rome statute of 1998 also established the court and gave it its powers it classified the international and direct international destruction of buildings and dedicated to the history uh, to, to art and historic monuments and what was interesting to note was a war crime is a violation of the law of armed conflict that results in the perpetrators criminal liability under international law whether customary or treaty. And this was really something that was, again, very important because it was openly put out there that destroying cultural property is a war crime. The second protocol of the Hague Convention, again, came into force in 1999, and actually came into force on 2014, right? It provides for the establishment of a International Registry of Cultural Property under special protection to which states can submit lists of important sites monuments or buildings of remarkable value to the cultural heritage of that state. India is not a signatory of the 1999 protocol, and this list is kept with UNESCO. And so UNESCO is the one who has been creating lists. So you must wonder, why is it that UNESCO wants World Heritage sites to be created? It's just for this purpose, to make sure that the minute that you get that World Heritage site site, uh, significance, you have enhanced protection, right? And it provides immunity from three things, right? One, the cultural heritage is of great importance to humanity. It certifies that. Two, it is protected by adequate domestic legal measures that recognize its exceptional value. So every time a World Heritage Site is notified in India, there is certain additional legal measures that have to be put in changes in legal uh, in, in laws within that particular area that need to come in to ensure that it continues to remain as is. And finally, it is not used for military purposes or to shield military sites. So the minute you have that status, if there is a conflict or if there is any uh, armed struggle, they have to make sure that the military does not use the site for armed conflict, right? So chapter four, which talks about criminal responsibility also highlights that it imposes a set of duties on state parties, including the power to prosecute individuals suspected of criminal culpability for major violations of the protocol on extraordinary jurisdictional grounds. Now, as of June, 2021, the ICC adopted a comprehensive policy on cultural heritage, right? And they looked at heritage crimes, Finally, these are two separate joint statements on the cooperation of the Asian Initiative for Cultural Heritage Conservation. It was China and Afghanistan, They primarily bilateral agreements between these two countries and China and Pakistan. This was of course also part of the initiative taken by China because of the One Belt, One Road Initiative. So the signatories of these, uh, the were to carry out all-round cooperation in joint archaeology, preservation and restoration of cultural property, conservation, management and sustainable development of World Cultural Heritage Sites, the exchange of ideas and preservation of technology, and the prevention of trafficking of cultural heritage and personal training. So the general principles, right, what we're going to look at next is on the implementation and enforcement of international obligations. Now that you have understood what the treaties are, right? So the next question is, how are we going to implement? The treaty might say, yes, we have to protect cultural heritage, but how are we going to actually implement this? So what we're now looking at is Article 2 of the International Law Commission's articles on the responsibility of international wrongful acts, right? So there is an internationally wrongful act of a state when the conduct consisting of an act or an omission is attributable to the state under international law, one. Two, it constitutes a breach of an international obligation that the state had, right? So take for example, where there is, you know, uh, such a legal finding, right? The state may then be called upon by the ICJ to say, hey, you know, there's an attributable evidence to show that the state has not acted or has wrongfully acted under international law. And so you'll have to make reparations or offer assurances of non repeating. What is interesting to note is that generally in international treaties, right, either a bilateral treaty or a multilateral treaty, will contemplate a dispute resolution mechanism at the end of the treaty, which will ultimately be able to identify or interpret how if the treaty did not, or if somebody who is a signatory to the treaty was in contravention of it, how would you go about doing it? But if the matter concerns a question of international law or arises from an international treaty, and the parties to the dispute have consented, the case can be referred to the International Court of Justice. right? So they have two options. One, when it's a bilateral treaty or multilateral treaty, what the dispute resolution clause says, right? in most cases, there will be mediation followed by arbitration. Or finally, go to the ICJ, which is the final court. But in certain cases, they go directly to mediation and not to ICJ. In certain cases, they can go directly to ICJ, or the ICJ may call upon them to make reparations or assure non-repeat. Now, the general principles on the implementation and enforcement, right, of international obligations, which are state responsibilities. Now, judgments delivered by the International Court of Justice, right, in disputes between the states, are binding upon the parties concerned. Right, you cannot go and appeal. This judgment is final. So as such, if a state refuses to comply with the decision of the ICJ, the only remedy is for the other state to approach the United Nations Security Council to intervene. For example, by passing a resolution calling upon the state to give effect to the court's decision. So the international law does not enjoy a strong implementation and enforcement mechanism, like I was telling you earlier, because of the prime importance of the state's consent. Now, unless the state consents to be a party, to a treaty by signing it and then ratifying it, there is no way that we can implement it. Unless of course, like I had mentioned earlier, there is customary international law, which supports it and which then we can use against that state. So dispute resolution mechanisms of the treaties can be now discussed, where I'm looking at treaty by treaty that we discussed, right? So the treaty, which is the first one, the Rorick Pact, It does not have any specific dispute resolution clause. And so the big lacuna in that treaty was that if there is a war crime and if art was stolen or was destroyed, there was no way in which we could enforce it. Then came the Geneva Convention, which clearly under Article 11 has conciliatory procedures, where there is two parties who come, there is a conciliator who's appointed, and both parties to the conflict make proposals and the protecting powers uh, if uh, may, if necessary, propose for the approval of the parties to the conflict to have a neutral third party, who will then take the initiative to be part of the meeting to resolve the issue. At the Hague Convention on the other hand, Article 22 also has a conciliatory procedure. Right, And for this purpose, each of the protecting powers may either at the invitation of one party of the Director General of United Nations, UNESCO, or on its own initiative, propose to the party to the conflict a meeting. UNESCO has played a very, very vital role here, I must say, in cultural conflicts. So whenever we have seen that cultural um, appropriation, right, either um, like you're seeing every time mr M- our prime minister goes to different parts of the world he's bringing back a lot of cultural property which has either been stolen or has been appropriated or through colon- colonialism has moved there and so unesco has played a huge role in diplomacy in you know not um, and in also reaching out to various organizations to identify the provenance of this and bring it back The next is the convention of the Council of Europe. Again, this does not specify any dispute resolution clause. And so implementation becomes an issue. Finally, the statute of Rome where article 119, right? uh, Clearly has a settlement of disputes. And it says that any dispute between two or more parties relating to the implementation or the application of the statute, which is not settled through negotiation within three months of their commencement shall be referred to an assembly of state parties. Now the assembly may itself seek to settle the dispute or may make recommendations on further means of settlement of the dispute, right, including reference to the International Court of Justice. And so this means that disputes not specifically enumerated as war crimes concerning the Rome uh, statute could potentially also be heard by the ICJ. And so what's interesting to note is that the Rome Statute in particular looks at individuals who might have been war criminals.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of the Arna Law Podcast. You'll find more details about the talk, along with links to some interesting reading material in our show notes. You can follow our podcast series on LinkedIn, or at www.adnalaw.com